Okay, um, right, let's get into the passage that we've got today then. We're in Acts chapter 6. That's where we've got to uh, so far in our journey through Acts. Uh, We've got to Acts chapter 6 and we're going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 7. And uh, please look it up in your Bibles or it will appear on the screen. Okay, so Acts chapter 6 starting in verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so we're going to have a very simple structure in looking through this passage today, okay? Very simple. I I like to keep it simple. Um, And so we're going to have the setting. We're going to look at the setting first of all. Then we're going to look at the problem that appears in this passage. Then we're going to look at the solution to the problem. And then we're going to look at the outcome. Okay, so the setting, the problem, the solution, and the outcome. So what was the setting, first of all? What was the setting here in this passage as we've dived into it? It's been a couple of weeks since we were in Acts. You may have kind of sort of, yeah, forgotten where we're at in the passage. Well, um, this passage in Acts chapter 6 here brings to a climax the first part of the book of Acts. Uh, You may have in your Bibles kind of little chapter uh, sort of headings and paragraph headings that are put in there by the translators but actually um, what we have here in verse 7 this little verse so the word of God spread the number of disciples increased rapidly etc that's a little summary verse that Luke the the author of Acts has put in there so it's almost like a little he's summarizing the story up to now so really the first six chapters of Acts up to now are um, are about the growth of the early church in Jerusalem and here what we see is that this, this is climaxing with this passage um, up to um, you know, uh, this part in the story. So what we've seen, what we've been seeing so far is the early days of this amazing new community that God has breathed into existence and that he's propelled into being through the power of his spirit. That's what we've been learning about. That's what we've been hearing about so far. Jesus, if you remember, returned to heaven. He's gone back to the Father. He sent the Spirit and something new is happening, something the like of which has never happened before in history up to this point. Something new is happening. God is starting to build a new community that's based around his new covenant that made with Jesus through his death and resurrection. It's still very much, though, a Jewish thing. This is all happening within Jerusalem. That's, that's the context, uh, is, is Jerusalem. It's, it's early days for this movement, and it's still very much all uh, Jewish uh, believers, Jewish people who are coming to know Jesus. So what are the hallmarks of this community? Well, we're told in uh, chapter 4 that it's a community that is one in heart and mind. 
and it's a place where there's no needy people among them. This is an attractive community. It's a place where Jesus is being talked about, amazing miracles, signs, wonders uh, are being performed. The word is being boldly proclaimed, the message about Jesus, the story of Jesus, the gospel is being boldly proclaimed and this community is growing and it's an attractive thing. The word is, is spreading. And a healthy church is a growing church. Amen? That's, that's right. A healthy church is a growing church. And that doesn't just mean bums on seats. It doesn't just mean people attracted to some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, the latest fad or a particular personality. Um, what it mentions here is the word disciples. And something interesting in Acts is how Christians are described. And it changes as we go through the book of Acts. In the first couple of chapters, they're simply called believers. Later on in chapter 12, uh, there's a verse where it says, you know, the, they, were, they were known as Christians first in Antioch. So this title, Christians, was given to them later on. And here we see in this passage the first time that the word disciples is used. Okay, so, so this is a new thing. Disciples is a word that's being used to describe these communities. And this, this word basically means apprentices, or, or disciplined learners, it's followers, true Jesus followers. Okay, these, are, these are people who aren't just attracted to a crowd or aren't just attracted to a phenomenon. These are people who have given their lives to Jesus, have given up stuff to follow Jesus and are disciples, they're, they're, they're learners, they're, they're apprentices of Jesus. Okay, so the church is growing, people are coming into faith, people are becoming disciples. All sounds good, all sounds really good. That's the situation we're in, the setting we're in. But what we hit here is another problem that comes up for the church. Now, this fledgling church, this fledgling community is is brilliant. We've seen lots of great things happen, but it's had its fair share of problems right from the beginning. It's had external problems in the form of persecution, as we've been hearing about. Uh, Some quite bad persecution it's seen already. But it's also had internal problems. So we're hearing a few weeks ago about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, which is really that the church was threatened from an internal source, and that was, that, that was deception. Lies were being told, and that was something that was very serious that needed to be dealt with. And what we see here is another internal problem. Okay, so this, this story today is concerned with an internal problem that comes up that threatens the church. Let's have a look then at what the internal problem is. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Right, so what's this all about then? Let's just take a few moments to look at this. Widows existed in the church at this time. Okay, so we all know what widows are, women whose husbands had died or women who had uh, no family. And that's who, what it meant in those days as well. But it's also possible that the widows may have included uh, women who've been isolated from what families they had by virtue of the fact that they'd become followers of Jesus. Okay, so they may have been persecuted or kind of cast out of their families. Remember at the time, this was a controversial thing. Some people were receiving it, some people were joining the, the church. Others thought it was, it was something bad and there was opposition. So some of these people, some of these widows, had become widows by virtue of the fact that they'd turned to Jesus. Okay, so they'd given up a lot to follow him. But they had no family to look after them in their old age. They were lonely. They were not provided for. But there's another aspect here on what, what it meant for them to be widows. Okay, and in, in that society, uh, having children passing on the bloodline 
was a mark of honour for a woman and a sign that God had blessed you. So it's also true to say that these widows in that culture, they had no family to show for their life. This meant that they were lonely and needy, but also that they experienced shame and disgrace. Okay, so they were kind of, uh, they were at the fringes of society. They were poor, they had a low social standing. They were kind of the very image, really, of of affliction and, and desolation in that society. Of course, the Roman Empire had no welfare state. There was no support network. These, these were, were, were really vulnerable uh, people at the fringes of society. And the church, the early church, was given the utter privilege of caring for these people. The utter privilege of caring for these people. I think it's significant that very early on in the story of the development of the church... We're seeing the church kind of formed in lots of different ways, the things that we see that are important to God about his, his body. And one of the things that we see is them caring for widows, them caring for those who are uh, outcast and at the edges of society. God is building into the DNA of this new community a great compassion, a great care for the poor, a great care for those who are outcast and who are marginalised in society and whose society thinks have got no status and aren't important. Because, of course, those are the people that Jesus went to, right? Those are the people that Jesus cared about, the people that Jesus gave honour and dignity to. And so he wants his people to do the same. He wants his people to, to care in the same way. There are many, just to quickly, uh, we'll come back to the problem in a minute, but just to quickly look, jump forward 2,000 years, look at our situation. There's many, many parallels in our society to, to widows. Obviously, we have widows in our society, but we have a n- many different groups of people who it would be true to say they're at the fringes of society. Many of you might, might know uh, s- people in these groups. Many of you might, might be from these groups. But people who are, who are lonely, people who are in great need, people who are isolated or have a low social standing. You've only got to look at the local statistics for Birmingham to see that we have, we have a lot of homeless people in Birmingham. We have a lot of unemployed people in Birmingham, people who are long-term ill, the elderly, those with broken or no families, refugees. Our city is full of people like this, people who are at the fringes of society, people who are the poor, people who are the have-nots. I don't know if you saw recently um, in the press, Birmingham was given the dubious honour of being named the benefits capital of Britain. Anyone see that story? The Office for National Statistics released some, st- some statistics, because that's what they do. Um, uh, and it was a report, basically, about um, every single constituency within the UK and the percentage of people within those constituencies who claim job seekers' allowance or similar benefits, so who aren't working and are on benefits. And out of the top ten constituencies in the UK, there were four that were from Birmingham. So it is reasonably significant. So you've got, I think it was Ladywood... Hodge Hill, Erdington and Perry Bar, I think, were, were, the, were the ones. But the media portrayal was not a little negative, shall we say. It was painting a picture that, that these people aren't great. These people are somehow lesser citizens just because, for whatever reason, they are not in work and are claiming benefits. And we know there's a lot of that kind of narrative in society. But I think, just to say, it, it, it would be true to say then that these are people on the fringes. These are people who have a low social standing, a low level of influence. Right here in Birmingham, 
right here in Birmingham. And to healthy, growing churches, God gives the privilege of caring for these people. And it is a privilege because, as I was saying, God's kingdom is upside down. The things that our society thinks are important, God's kingdom turns them upside down. God gives amazing dignity to those that don't have dignity. He remembers the forgotten. He hears the cry of the voiceless. And he calls us, gives us the privilege of doing the same. Pretty amazing, isn't it? It's challenging. It's a challenge, it's a challenge but it's, a, it's an honor as well. Uh, now, the book of James, it's interesting, as I've been preparing for this, I've been dipping into the book of James quite a lot because I discovered that, I didn't know this before, but the book of James is one of the earliest New Testament letters in terms of when it was written. It was written like really early on. And James was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And actually, he was writing into this context pretty much. He was writing into the context that we're looking at here in the early chapters of Acts into the Jewish, predominantly Jewish, Jerusalem church. And he says in chapter 1 verse 27 of his letter, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. So again, looking after orphans and widows, a massive priority for the early church. And so the church in Acts was taking this responsibility seriously. Within Jewish culture, there was a custom of a a -a once-a-week distribution of food and clothing, as well as a daily meeting of more urgent needs. This was a practice that the early church had adopted. So they were looking after the widows. They were distributing food. But this is where we see the problem arise. Okay, And the problem is that there's two different groups, the Hellenistic and the Hebraic. The Hellenistic and the Hebraic. What's all this about? Well, allow me to explain with the help of this map. I love a map. I do love a map. You can explain a lot with a map. Hopefully you can see that okay, right? So this map is the Roman Empire in the first century. All of that kind of orange section is the Roman Empire and the spread of the Roman Empire. Now the Roman Empire had a common language and a common culture and the language was Greek and the culture is what they call Hellenistic or it's kind of Greek-based culture, okay? Over in the right-hand side there, you've got Judea with Jerusalem there um, on the kind of bottom right. I don't know if you can see that clearly, but that's, that's where Jerusalem and Judea was. That's where the action was taking place in this story. Now, the Hebraic Jews were the ones that lived in Jerusalem and Judea. Okay? They would have spoken Aramaic. They may not have spoken Greek. They would have been those that saw themselves as being pure. They wanted to keep and preserve the traditions of Israel, and, and they wanted to be faith, you know, keep the law, uh, keep, be strong in the traditions, uh, and, and kind of live within the promised land and kind of live out this, this holy people, this being separate um, from the world around them. Okay, so they would have been seen themselves as kind of pure Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were the Jews that lived scattered all across the rest of the Roman Empire. We know when Paul goes to places and starts preaching, um, you know, he goes to all the different places across the empire. Often he'll land in a town and he'll go to a synagogue and he'll start speaking there. So there's lots of Jews spread around all over the Roman Empire at that point. These are called Hellenistic Jews. And the reason is because they basically, they speak Greek. They're quite assimilated in with the rest of the culture around them, even though they want to be Jewish and sort of preserve their Jewishness. Now, obviously, what had happened on the day of Pentecost, people had come to Jerusalem. A lot of people had heard the gospel. Some of these Jewish people had become Christians, some of them being Hellenistic, some of them being Hebraic. Are you with me so far? So uh, this is a bit kind of geography, history teacherish, but uh, hopefully this is, this, is, this is important to understand it. 
Why were there then Hellenistic Jews and Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem? The reason is, if you were a Hellenistic Jew and you'd lived all of your life somewhere out there in the Roman Empire, as you reached the end of your life, you would have wanted to return to Jerusalem in order that you could die and be buried in the promised land near the holy city of Jerusalem. Okay, So what you have is native Judeans, native Hebraic Jews, and then these, these people who come from outside. They're Jewish and they're now believers in Jesus, but they don't speak the same language, they don't come from the same place. There's a lot of difference there going on. And what the problem is, is that the widows from the wider world were being overlooked in favour of the local widows. To put no finer point on it, what was going on here was nothing short of discrimination. That's the problem that we've hit here in this passage. There's discrimination in the church. With Ananias and Sapphira, truth and integrity were at stake within the body. Here, what we see is unity and justice are at stake within the body. This is a community that was one in heart and mind and had no needy people among them. And here what we see is a threat to that unity and fairness and justice. Okay, so that's the problem. That's the, that's, the, that's the kind of crux of the issue here, is that potentially unity and justice and fairness is being, is being attacked by this uh, thing that's come up. Now, the scholars would agree that it's probably not open discrimination. It was probably subtle. Perhaps it was even unintentional. We're told that the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem at that time numbered about 10 to 20% of the population. Okay, so they were a minority in the city. They were also a minority in the church. So what we've got here is a minority being overlooked by the majority. That's the situation. And the fact is, that was wrong. For the God of justice, the one who cared about the overlooked and the excluded, the one who was building his church, this was a situation that needed challenging and changing. And so the Greek-speaking Christians complained to the 12 apostles. And so we move on to the solution. How did they deal with it? Well, first of all, let's look at who raised the problem. It was, it was the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Christians who raised the problem to the apostles. If you look at the names of the seven that are listed here, we have all of their names, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. I'm not even sure whether I've pronounced them right, but that seems to be right. These are mostly Greek names. Okay? And we, it's in the case of Nicholas, he was a convert to Judaism. He was, he was Gentile. He was a Greek-born. So he was definitely a, someone who'd come in from outside. So it's interesting to note that the complaint came from within the minority. It's an important thing for us to note. But what we see here, in the way that this thing was dealt with, we see an absolute model for how to deal with these kinds of issues as they arise in church. We'll come on a bit later to think about our own context and uh, whether these issues might exist among us. But it's just important to note as we go through the solution that this is, this is a model way of dealing with the issue. How did they deal with the issue? Well, there's three things. Firstly, they were willing to raise it. Secondly, they were willing to be led on it. And thirdly, they were willing to be part of the solution. Okay, so firstly, they were willing to raise it. These guys, they faced the problem as soon as it surfaced. 
Okay, so there, there was discrimination going on. Some of the widows were being overlooked. And immediately, they raised it. They took it to the twelve, to the leaders. They were clear. They were honest. They were open and above board. Now, that might seem like an obvious point. It might seem, uh, you know, like, well, well, how else would you deal with it? But I think it's important to th- consider what they didn't do, what these guys didn't do. See, by dealing with it immediately, they didn't give it time to fester. They didn't allow a grudge to develop. And that they didn't just discuss the problem within, with people from within their own group. They didn't allow a them and us attitude to develop. They didn't allow their language and their culture to define them more than their identity as disciples of Jesus. They didn't form a faction and they didn't walk away. They didn't go and form some sort of Hellenistic Greek-speaking congregation over the other side of Jerusalem. They didn't act out of independence or a sense of entitlement or from a place of mistrust. And I think that's really important because if we remember the context of, of what these guys and of the church that they're in, from chapter 2, we're, we're told that this was a devoted people. These were people who had devoted themselves to this thing. They'd given up everything to follow Jesus. They devoted themselves to Jesus. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to meeting up regularly to the apostles' teaching. And it was out of that place of devotion to Jesus, out of that place of devotion to his mission and devotion to his church, that they were able to bring their complaint to the leaders. There was an established trust in the apostles that these guys acted out of. Okay, so that's really important. They were willing to raise it, but they had the right heart, they had the right spirit in how they did it. Secondly, they were willing to be led on it. Okay, so having submitted their concerns in a humble, godly fashion, they then enjoyed the benefit of receiving a wise response from the leaders. The twelve gave a lead. This was godly leadership in action. So what did they say? They said, choose seven men from among you who we can appoint to deal with this. Now, since we're talking about minorities and discrimination, it's probably worth addressing why they chose seven men to deal with this issue. Okay? Now, for us, that might seem strange. But for, this, for these guys, it was a culturally very appropriate and sensitive suggestion. I'm told from reading you know, the scholars who look into this stuff and know about clever things like what happened in those days, I'm told that um, it was customary in the Jewish towns of Judea for there to be seven men appointed to assess and resolve disputes. That was kind of the way they organized things. Also, in the wider Greek-speaking Roman world, there's evidence that seven was the standard size of some administrative councils that they had. Okay, so this would have been like a, a very appropriate suggestion for both sides. That's, that's just important. It was, it was godly leadership in action. But at this stage, I just want to just kind of sidestep a little bit, just to address um, a big mistake that people sometimes make with this story. And maybe you've, you've done this, maybe you've read this story, skimmed over it, and perhaps taken something from it that it's not really saying. And that is this phrase that where the, disciple, where the apostles say, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. It's possible to read that in a way that sounds like what the apostles are saying is that waiting on tables, solving the dispute with the widows, is beneath them. It's a base kind of unspiritual activity. We're all about preaching of the word and prayer over here. 
it, it's beneath us to deal with uh, the widows. That's not important. Okay, and the danger is, if you go down this road, you could, if you take that from this passage, you can think that caring for physical needs is less important than pre- preaching the word to people. But the reality is that both are important both are equally important. And this is really big for us as a church in our social action, our projects that we do, work with CAP, the work with the elderly, the work with refugees. Both are important. We are about meeting physical needs. We are about caring for people and showing the compassion of God in practical, tangible terms and meeting needs. But we're also about the word of God and people hearing the message of Jesus, having the opportunity to respond to him as well. Both are important. The other thing here is that Do you notice how, to deal with this issue, the apostles don't just choose anyone. They choose their very best people. They choose their brightest emerging leaders. They choose the people that are filled with wisdom, people that are filled with the Spirit, people that are just uh, so gifted in order to deal with this issue. These widows are important to the church. They, They need to be dealt with by the best people. And that's because care for the poor and church unity, on the one hand, were huge apostolic priorities, just as preaching the word and prayer were also apostolic priorities. Everything was important. Both were important. And actually what we see here in this story is that the apostles are are finding a solution to make sure that both can carry forward in the right way. Really, this is about individual calling and gifting more. The apostles are saying, look, the Holy Spirit's priority for us is to, is, is to preach and to pray. That's what we're called to do. We're called to preach the word. We're called to pray. We're called to lead the church. And what, what, what you see here is that the seven were released into their calling and gifting. Steve and Philip and those guys. Okay, they, that they were called and gifted to ensure that care and provision was equitable for the widows. So do you see, there's, there's, it's just about calling and gifting. And it's important in the church to, to remember that, that many of us do different things. Many of us, have, we all have different gifts. We all have different things that God has put on our hearts. And they're all important. And we all need to be released into uh, the gifting and calling that God has got for us. For some, it will be, it'll be leading. It'll be, it'll be preaching. It'll be proclaiming the word. For some, it'll be doing things like this, caring for the poor. Uh, whatever it is, whatever you're involved in in church life, hopefully you can gain encouragement from this that it is important. It's important, and you are playing your part. You are playing your part in building um, God's church. So the leaders gave a godly lead. And thirdly, these guys, they were willing to be part of the solution. The apostles delegated back to the community the job of choosing the seven. And as we've already noted, most of the seven are Hellenistic Jews. Okay, so they're the ones who raised the complaint were then willing to become part of the solution. And obviously there's practical stuff in that. They would have spoken Greek. They would have been able to speak to the widows and kind of liaise between them, all that kind of stuff. So we can see how it all worked out. What was the outcome then? Well, the outcome was, as we see in verse 7, the word of God spread. So this thing was dealt with, this uh, potential real schism within the church potential thing that could have blown up and been really bad it was dealt with they came through the injustice was was dealt with the people were released into their gifts and the church remained united and was strengthened and grew i love psalm 133 
where it says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. For there the Lord bestows a blessing, even life forevermore. There's an amazing principle there, isn't there? A united church is a church where people find eternal life in Jesus. And that's what we see going on here. The unity was preserved and the word of God spread. It's magnificent stuff. So, that's the story. What about us? Let's, let's spend a few minutes just applying it to us. What can we learn from this here in our context? Well, there's a few really practical things first, okay? Number one, if you have a heart and you think you may have some gifting in the area of caring for the poor and you're not already involved in something that we do, then we'd love to hear from you. I would personally love to hear from you. If this is something that you think, yes, I have a heart for this, I want to make a difference, I want to care for the people that are marginalised in society, or maybe you see an area in society that perhaps we're not currently working and you think we'd love to see that happen more, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to kind of release you into that. Secondly, if you're aware of a need in the church that's not being met, we'd also love to hear about that. We want this to be a church where there's no needy people among us. And we take that very seriously. A number of years ago, we launched a hardship fund, uh, which is there. It's one of those kind of things that exists in, in church life. It's there in the background. I have the amazing privilege and joy of being able to kind of help administer that fund. Uh, so when we hear of needs, we're able to give gifts from the funds to different people. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing part of church life. It just kind of goes on in the background. And it's a great sort of um, resource that we have. You, you may have seen, we actually have some leaflets about the Hardship Fund with more information. It's all on the, on the welcome table. If you've never grabbed one of those before, have a little look. You can find out more about it. If you're aware of a need, either you have a need or you know someone in the church who has a need, um, a kind of financial or a practical need, um, then consider the Hardship Fund. Could could be a way of dealing with it. Speak to your life group leader, speak to myself, um, speak to one of the leaders in the church um, and... Uh, it can come back to me and we can help to deal with it. We have a little team behind the scenes who kind of, um, you know, consider requests and help to kind of make awards. Um, so I just wanted to let you know about that. Thirdly, discrimination. Uh, it's, a, it's an ugly word, but we need to address it. From my perspective, I don't feel that we have a massive problem with discrimination in our church. But by definition, I'm probably not the best person to ask, am I really? I'm part of the white, male, able-bodied, middle-class majority. And did you notice how in this story, it wasn't the Hebraic Jews that complained? You know, the ones who were fine, the ones who were getting the provision, they didn't say, oh, I think some people over there have been missed out. And they thought everything was fine and dandy. And the danger is in the majority, you can think it's all going great but you're not, but it might not be. So I may feel like we're, we're going great on this, but I, I, I've got to be humble and say, I, I, I don't know. I, I might not know. I might not be aware. Obviously, our setting is multicultural Birmingham. We have different languages. We have different cultures, different nations and backgrounds. It's marvelous. It's a wonderful part of who we are, but it can bring differences in outlook, differences in attitude. And also increasingly, I, I think we, you know, we're seeing uh, people from different social backgrounds too. 
And we need to be aware of our own prejudices. We need to be aware of and sensitive to any issues that there might be. And I just want to say really clearly, if you're the equivalent of a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian (laughs) here today, so if you are in any kind of a sort of minority and you think that there may be issues in the church, then just I'd want to let you know that as leaders, that is something we would take very seriously. We really would. And we want our church to be united and to be a demonstration of the kingdom where there aren't subtle distinctions and where people don't feel like they have a a relative status. And we, I just want to say we are willing and we are keen to address any kind of these issues. I just want to say really clearly there are no second-class members in Church Central. It's really important. So we'd be only too keen to start a conversation if you felt that was uh, appropriate. Now, the only thing I'd ask, if you're in that camp and you do feel maybe that this is an issue, you feel there's perceived unfairness, you feel like people are being overlooked, the only thing I'd ask is I'd counsel you to take the same approach as these guys did. Act out of devotion. Act out of devotion to Jesus. Act out of devotion to his bride. And have trust in your leaders. You know, hopefully you can act out of the same trust. For all of us, then, I guess I'm self-aware enough to know we're not as diverse as we could be as a church. You know, this city is incredibly diverse. I long for us to reflect that more. I long for us to see lots of different people coming in, coming to know the gospel, and us building a community that's a demonstration of that. So we may not be quite there, but I believe we can be. I believe that we can be. But it takes work, it takes sensitivity, it takes us working together. But we can demonstrate that Christ can make people one. That's, that's one of the powerful things about the church. That's one of the powerful things that we can do. We can be a demonstration to the world. To, let's face it, to a world that is pretty damaged by ethnic tension, uh, class shaming, nationalism, all some of the issues that we have in society. just want to finish... Um, with a quote, we're nearly done. I'm going to finish with a quote, and I wonder if anyone can guess who this quote is from. Here's the quote The early church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, it was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. If today's church does not recapture the spirit, sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for today. Any guesses as who might have said that? Who? Jonathan Bell. It's <laughs> the kind of thing he might have said, but no, this wasn't him. This was actually written in a letter from Birmingham Prison. Not Winston Green, the one in Alabama. This is a quote from Martin Luther King. Okay, so Martin Luther King. But tremendously relevant, I think. Now, that's a man who understood what it meant to be a minority and what it meant to have discrimination. And the challenge for us is that we can be a thermostat rather than a thermometer in this area. We can be the city on a hill, the light shining, demonstrating something different to the world. And that's where God's taking us. I believe that's the church he's building here. But we need to be aware and sensitive to these issues and hopefully we can you know, take some of these practical pointers from this passage.